I think we should start by saying Happy New Year, shouldn't we? I think that's a good <laughs> idea, yeah. Uh, this is the first uh, episode we have recorded in 2023, so Happy New Year to everybody listening, and of course, Happy New Year to you as well, Sven. Yeah, Happy New Year. We had a, an extra week off there due to illness on my part, but we are back now, um, all healthy again. Um, and uh, well, I guess the extra week helped a bit um, because the news was light over the holiday break. But I think we've we've got a couple of things to talk about anyway, don't we? We do, yeah. And certainly, I enjoyed taking uh, a little time away from uh, away from work over the holidays. It was it was nice to take a, a break away from everything. So um, I, I think you feel the same way about that as well. Although obviously, your illness towards the end of it is less than ideal. The the terrible thing is you 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 lose any sort of fitness so quickly it's it's really harsh. I mean, you can hardly walk up a flight of stairs after right, after yeah. five days in bed. It's terrible. But yeah, there we go. Yeah. So what what did we do actually? What's what's new in Swift package indexing land? Um, for my part, I had a bit of fun working with AWS Lambda. That's perhaps worth talking about for a moment because uh, I found that quite interesting, actually. That was the first time I actually played around with it. And um, the reason we're looking into this is we are having some trouble uploading our doc sets, the Doxy archives, to S3, where we're hosting them um, when they're very large. And we do have a couple of cases where they're really large. And in particular, not just the size themselves, it's the number of files. One of them has um, more than 100,000 files and gigabytes worth of data. Um, and the problem is our builders who are doing the upload sort of, you know, they have like a 15 minute budget to do all their work. And that's just not long enough to do that. So the idea was to zip it all up, ship the zip file, which is fast, and then have a Lambda deal with the upload part of it. Um, and that's pretty much set up. Um, had I fought a bit with AWS and it's, it's um myriad of settings it's like always daunting when you fiddle around with aws because everything is like comes in dozens you know there's like dozens of permissions on everything there's dozens of services i i really often don't understand where to even start um but i had a lot of help here especially from fabian fett and um matt masicotti uh who are really um, helpful in getting this set up and have a, a system in place to actually deploy easily. And it, deploying is actually quite interesting because the first thing I did is I set up a deployment into a Lambda like you normally would with a GitHub action on a, a Linux runner, an x86 Linux runner that then deploys into a, uh, builds a Docker image. Well, it's not a Docker image. It builds a zip file with a, a x86 binary. It uses a Docker image to build this, but then extracts the binary and that bundled up zip gets uploaded to AWS for deployment. So all of this is x86 based. And obviously when you're working on an M1 Mac as I am, you, you really want to improve your turnaround, you know, rather than have to trigger GitHub action that then does it in on GitHub side and then triggers that to upload, you really want to actually have to run that, you know, have that running locally and then push directly. Yeah. Like that, that process of having to invoke a whole mechanism of CI and uploading into AWS, I can't imagine actually being productive in that kind of environment. So local development is an absolute must. I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this isn't even as much about local development because still the testing I, I did and has to be pretty much in the 
uh, in the Lambda, and that's mainly because of my network connection. I can't actually try any of this stuff locally because, you know, I'd, I'd be sitting there for ages. My network connection is terrible. But I still wanted to improve the turnaround of not having to go through through a GitHub action because the runners aren't, obviously aren't as fast as an M1 Mac building the whole thing and then um, uploading that. And the interesting bit is that you can actually build a ARM64 binary using the ARM Linux Docker image that Amazon uh, Amazon Linux has um, ARM64 Docker images, and you can use those to build natively on an ARM Mac, bundle up an ARM binary, and upload that as a Lambda, because AWS have Graviton um, CPUs, which are ARM-based CPUs, and they run it. And they run it perfectly fine. Oh, interesting. And they run it at the same speed. So in my testing, I I was unable to tell which actually ran it. And on top of that, the Graviton CPUs are actually 20% cheaper than the x86 ones. So I think when we're going to deploy this, I'm going to spend a little time, not a whole lot, but a little time trying to actually change our GitHub action setup to not build on x86 Linux but instead build the whole thing on an arm on a on a mac if i can i'm not sure if github actually have arm macs at their disposal or, or if there's a way an easy way to actually maybe self host that's something i need to want to think about because 20% cost isn't that's significant you know that's that's a, an amount you probably want to spend a little time uh-huh. maybe um improving if you can so i found that really interesting how seamless you can deploy to a lambda with um with stuff that you build on on an arm mac I think your real reason for doing that is your New Year's resolution to never again use an Intel CPU, right? <laughs> well, where it gets really interesting is that you then again develop on the same architecture as you ship. That hasn't been a problem for us for the vast majority of time. I mean, most of the time we actually no, don't notice that at all. It makes no difference for us. I mean, we don't even develop on the same architecture. We don't even develop on the same OS. So what we actually do, we develop on ARM Macs with Xcode and run stuff on macOS, but we actually deploy on x86 Linux. So we're actually crossing the boundaries twice. And the only time that actually has been a problem when there were, I don't recall what the, I think it was some issues with our tests and and, and um, concurrency, where I really wanted to run our actual Docker image to see what was going on because the only errors we got, the only failures we got were in CI. I never was able to reproduce it locally on macOS. And that was the time when I really thought, I wish I could just run the same thing locally because what I had to do is run the whole thing on a, on a, one of our Linux VMs, on a hosted VMs through remote VS code into a Docker image. It was, it was a whole thing to try and get this running and um, to try and reproduce this issue on on the actual target platform with a target OS, and being able to take one of those out of the equation would be really convenient. Um, I think, at least in those cases, it would be interesting. Plus, if you think about, you could even host not just lambdas but just any service on a Docker, a Docker run service on a Graviton EC2 node, then. You again, you, you're crossing the boundaries with in terms of your OS, but not on your in terms of your architecture, and you get a twenty percent savings. That's actually quite significant and, and really interesting. Um, and these, I think, the Graviton two nodes, and I think they even have Graviton three, which are promising to be 
more performance. So I, I think that's really interesting what's happening there in the server side space with, with ARM. I've not come across uh, th this Graviton thing. Is, is that the is that the brand? Is that a manufacturer? Uh, that's what Amazon call their ARM CPUs. Yeah. Oh, okay, right. I um I I haven't done a lot with AWS at all actually, and so uh, I guess the, that's the first time I've uh, I've come across that term. The other thing that's worth briefly talking about with this feature is that, as I understand it, at least when we ship this, we're going to ship it with effectively two code paths. So every documentation package, which is under a threshold, I believe it's 500 megabytes, is going to still use the old process, at least initially, and then only uh, documentation archives, which are over that threshold, will use this uh, zip up and Lambda extract onto S3 uh, process. But as I understand it, that's really um, there to be a little bit of a let's not throw all our eggs into one basket all at the same time and over time i think if the if the lambda uh, version is successful and if it works uh, as we expect it to um is the plan to move across to always that or are we always going to have two code paths do you think i think we'll lower the threshold uh, bit by bit i mean right now by setting the threshold where we start doing this at 500 megabytes we're actually not changing anything because we have a hard limit of 500 megabytes right now right. Yeah. where we just don't we don't host documentation doc sets larger than that there's one exception and that's the one where that triggered that whole um, exploration but the nice thing is we we're actually even if this goes horribly we're no worse off because right now we're not we're not even accepted accepting them right and then we're starting with the worst case so you know once these work we can just lower the threshold and, and onboard more and more packages into this code path and retire the old one with it you know it has the downside of a bit of extra complexity by adding another step to the chain but if we're honest having the builder do two things isn't isn't great for other reasons either because it's sometimes hard to tell if a build succeeded it doesn't necessarily mean that doc upload succeeded so we're sort of blurring the lines a bit in in you know, the success state of that stage. And it's better to actually have a separate stage and then subsequently also have that stage report its success and failure separately. I believe this is also going to introduce a, it'll be very difficult to notice in the real world, but it's also going to introduce a very slight delay onto when we claim documentation to be available to when documentation will actually be available. Because the way that it works at the moment is the documentation gets uploaded as part of that build process. And so we go the whole way through the build process, then the whole way through the documentation generation. And only when the whole thing has been uploaded to S3 and we're all completed, do we ping back to our server and say, the build is done. You can now um, mark this as uh, this package as having uh, a new set of documentation. And unless you've done something that I'm not aware of, we're now going to be in a state where we'll do that ping back to the server at the point that we kick off the Lambda execution. And so for however long that uh, takes, the server will think that there is documentation there, but it won't yet be there. Is that is that fair? Yeah, there's, uh, worst case is uh, if I can get the runtime down a bit, which is the last bit to fix here, it, it might be a couple of minutes gap. Um, but that's the thing that we can ultimately address by having the documentation stage report its result back. And then we can gate the showing of a documentation 
on the success of that stage rather than the build stage. And that will actually then help get everything back into alignment again. Right. That's good. Yeah. And like a couple of minutes here and there, if somebody clicks a, a link to a version that has literally just immediately become available yeah, and they get a 404 and they hit back and they wait a couple of minutes and they hit it again, it's not the end of the world. It's not, it's not, it's not a terrible situation, although it's obviously not ideal. Well, the thing is with a normal package, like less than 100 megabytes, that isn't going to be minutes. It's, it's going to be 10, 20 seconds, perhaps. I mean, my testing with a, with a small package, it's the, the Lambda trigger is near instant and the unzipping and uploading is, takes like 10 seconds. So I, I don't think in practice for the vast majority of packages, you will actually be able to hit that. So I, I think we should be fine. And in, in cases of these large packages, again, we're probably no worse off than them not being able to, to ship them at all right now. That sounds like you're setting me a challenge to, uh, to find a package <laughs> and get the 404. I will report it as a GitHub issue as soon as I do. <laughs> I will angry, angrily close it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. And, and certainly I think, you know, obviously we've been, we've been working on documentation now for quite a long period. It's, it has been a, a, a significant, really significant feature and at every step, you know, we've chipped a version of this feature and, and we're iterating it over time now. And I feel like if we can host really large documentation sets, like, like we're attempting to do here, that is a, is a great, uh, step forward. And it's, it's also, it's the kind of thing that we wouldn't, we wouldn't be putting all this effort into, um, enhancing this feature if people weren't using it. You know, we've seen great adoption of yeah. package authors opting into documentation generation. Um, and that's what makes us want to then make sure that we're doing the best possible job that we can to, to make sure that documentation is hosted without any hassle from the package author as good as we can possibly do it. Yeah, I mean, exactly. The big doc sets are the interesting ones, right? They have lots of documentation, so you want to be able to, to host them and make them available. So yep, definitely. Right. So that was, uh, my, um, Travis with, um, AWS Lambda. I think we talked briefly about some Google timestamp or Google SEO stuff last time. We did talk about it last time. So we talked about the canonical URL, um, issue, which is where, and I'm, I won't go over the whole thing again, but it's, if you didn't listen last time, it's, it's basically every time we do upload a set of documentation and we're indexing that or allowing, allowing Google to index that documentation, it's seeing lots of copies of either identical or very, very similar sets of web pages. And it's actually penalizing our search rankings for, and in fact, it's not even penalizing, it's excluding them from the Google index because it thinks it's spam. Basically this is just repeated content. This is just some random website trying to get SEO, uh, juice and, and, and that's what it thinks we're doing. And we talked a little, a little bit last time about the fact that we're going to have to put a canonical URL on the latest set of documentation and have all the older sets point to that. And Google at that point know that it is archived sets, that this is the correct version and hopefully we'll then start indexing this better or indexing it at all in some cases. But we've also been fighting with uh, Google a little bit on um, some other metadata, which we added into the uh, index a few months ago. And this is an issue that have, has been open and closed uh, too many times, I would say. 
So the idea originally was Google has this thing where if you tell it the date that this page was last updated, it will put that date on the, the search results in Google. So you might see uh, a package and what we were intending was that the package, the, the date that it would display was the last release of the package. So you can, from Google search results, start to see, is this something I actually want to click on or should I be looking for a different link? And the first attempt that we had at solving this was um, we, we used something called JSON-LD, which is in a web page, so it's not a separate API request, it's some JSON that you embed inside a web page that Google and other things can look for um, that basically gives structured data to bots that are reading the page. So we describe, and it uses the schema.org definitions of uh, describing various bits of data. So we describe every package as a software source code, and we supply various bits of information like for example the last date it was updated and the language it was written in and you know various other bits of information that's been there for a while now and google should be using the dates that are in that json but it also says if you read the google documentation it says it might not because anything that's not visible to humans Google doesn't like to trust that because you can try and trick Google by putting a whole load of stuff in uh, secret or hidden tags that humans will never see. Yeah. And you can, like a lot of people use that for, for bad purposes, you know, of course. Yeah. And so what they suggest you do is they say you should put in text on your page somewhere, last updated at, and then a date. And we did that a few months ago. And I was checking on it every few weeks to see uh, if it was uh, if it was updating, and sure enough, a lot of packages started showing dates on their listings, but not all packages. And it was very consistent. It wasn't that some were coming and some were going. It was just refusing to do it for some packages. And so I tried all sorts of stuff in this uh, issue. I tried moving where that date was placed on the page because originally I put it right down at the bottom of the page. And I'm thinking, well, maybe Google is looking at like, it's right, maybe it's knows it right, it's right down at the bottom, it's saying, well, that's that's really, you should make it more prominent. So I moved it up onto the sidebar and it was there for a little while. And then of course, every time you make any change, you have to wait a month or so for Google to kind of re-index and re, you know, it doesn't instantly make these changes. And so uh, it's been a bit of a, an ongoing process. Anyway, just before the end of last year, I had um, one last idea uh, as a result of a conversation with a friend of mine and the idea was to put the date in a time tag instead of like a P tag or a, something like that, you know, a span or whatever. And in, if you use a time tag, you can, there's an attribute on it called date time and you can put a date in that as well. And I think it was you, Sven, this afternoon checked into whether the, that had, had any results and um, one of the two test packages now has a date on it as a result of that change. So that's very promising. And I think over the next uh, few weeks, I'll watch that and see if that filters through to more packages that didn't have a date on them. So you wrestled the, the Google machine into into accepting our dates. Yeah, I mean, you can never really tell. And this is, this is quite in the weeds. Like, this doesn't affect anything that's actually on our package page. This is only inside the Google search results that you'll see, you know, if you do a search for, for something and yeah. the Swift package index happens to be 
a search result that it is going to suggest to you, it's at that point that we're trying to put the date there. So it's, it's kind of minor, really, but I, I'm glad that it, this is finally looking like it's uh, potentially going to work. There's no way in the search console to see what it actually saw. You like also the JSON-LD stuff you mentioned earlier. Is that actually exposed somewhere, what it, what it actually crawls out of a page? Uh, not in um, Search Console, but there is a tool that Google have where you can give it a URL and it will tell you what it sees in terms of JSON-LD. Right. Like an, an internal tool or something that you or we could use to see what it actually sees? Yeah, no, and, and that's been working fine. So the JSON-LD, there's actually been no changes to that. And I checked that, that it could see all the JSON-LD and it, it's very happy with the JSON-LD. And that's certainly, that's giving us points with Google <laughs> for, for it to think that we're a good citizen, you know? Um, but what it then says is it says, well, that's great and you should definitely do that, but you should also put the date on the page somewhere. Well, slowly but surely, we, uh, we get the machine to work in our favor. <laughs> we do. So, uh, shall we do some package recommendations? Yeah, um, maybe one last thing to mention. We recorded an episode on Leo Dion's Empower Apps podcast oh, last yes, night. Did, yeah. uh, that was a really fun conversation. And it should be coming out later this month, I believe. So keep your podcast players primed and have a look into Leo's um, feed. Not just for us, but in general. I think um, this is maybe a good uh, time to say that I've, I've been listening to Leo's uh, podcast for quite a while and I'm always impressed the the people he finds often voices I'd never heard from before and it's often really interesting topics a while back he had uh, someone talk about app clips which was really interesting because I hadn't heard anyone talk about them in a while and it was it's really nice really great podcast give it a listen yeah it was fun to uh, record with him uh, uh, yesterday all right, so let's do some package recommendations. Well, I'm I'm going I'm going to stop you yet again. Oh, <laughs> because <laughs> I'm really keen to get to the package recommendations. Yes, <laughs> I know, I know. I'm going to keep you just a moment longer. I have a a one one question uh, little quiz. Uh, remember a while back we were wondering um, we were talking about our Swift version support, and the question came up: Well, how many packages? We are, are there actually that um, support 5.6, but not 5.7. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I remember. And I had a little dig in our, uh, into our database. Uh, um, wrote so horrible <laughs> SQL to get the, the answer to that. What do you think? How many packages support 5.6, but not 5.7? I feel like most 5.6 packages, because 5.7, I don't, if uh, my memory may be failing me here, but I think 5.7 was a fairly mild release in terms of the possibility to break anything. I think it added some stuff. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to say that it's really quite high. I'm going to say it's 90%. In fact, no, I'm going to say it's 95%. Right. So you're saying 5% of packages are incompatible with 5.7, but... It broke 5%. Yeah, exactly. It's actually less than 1%. It's 46 packages. And, and yeah, you're right. I was actually, I actually looked at what they were failing with because I couldn't think of anything that would um, cause a failure. And the, the, a common thing that jumped out was ambiguous use of split, split, uh, separate and max splits omitting empty six weeks subsequences is, is the actual call. This is a function on uh, sequences 
and I guess there is a overload or something that packages had defined themselves. I noticed that a lot of packages were server-side and vapor packages that perhaps had this defined themselves and or were using a package that had this defined, maybe pulled it forward and, and now it's conflicting or something. I mean, it doesn't look like it's a huge thing to fix, but it, it did actually flag a, a real problem. And that made me think maybe it's it might be interesting to look at these whenever there's a transition to see if these are happening, mm. if there's a common theme and maybe make a tra transition guide for, for people to immediately sort of know, all right, this is what I need to do. I haven't given this any thought. This is the first. Was, this is the first time I've even uh, had this idea. But I wonder if there's any kind of um, way to make that complex SQL that you wrote to to get this query into a little interactive uh, web page where you could pick a a source version and a destination version and maybe get some kind of list of uh, of, of compatibility um, uh, information. Well, we definitely need to tweak it because that ran 10 seconds. <laughs> we can't run that live. Oh, it was a 10 second query? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's terrible. It was horrible. I just, I just threw it together real quick and did it in horrible ways. And, um, that, that isn't shippable like yeah, that. Sure, <laughs> sure. And I'm not even sure, like, I'm not even sure what that page would actually show and whether it would be something that would be useful enough to make it a page on the site, but it's maybe worth spending five minutes thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, in the end, it's going to be fairly static, right? The only that only changes with build, so it's probably something that could be um, queried every once in a while, and then just in a materialized view or something. Right. Yeah. Um, persisted, so you don't requery every time. Yeah. So there you go. Is it finally time for package share? I don't mention. I'm gonna let you go first now, so uh, you don't need to wait any longer. <laughs> what have you got? I was so desperate. <laughs> Um, so my first uh, recommendation for uh, this week is a package called Foil uh, by Jesse Squires. It's been around for a couple of years now, um, but just at the end of last year, 23rd of December, in fact, they released a 4.0 uh, milestone, and uh, and so that popped it into my um, into my feed, and it was an interesting, to, interesting package to to read about. So basically, it's a property wrapper, um, and it's for storing, um, storing settings in user defaults. So you can take a class and you can add a wrapped default property wrapper um, and give it a key uh, to store in user defaults. And the bit which is, was a very bold claim, uh, but I have no reason to doubt it, is that it said you can wrap any type with this. So that's that's a, I think, let me just double check that claim. Actually, I saw it earlier, but um, I can't actually see it at the moment. But I'm pretty sure it said you can wrap any type, which is a which is a bold claim. Also, codable is required. Well, I'm guessing that's how it it, it tackles the any class. Right. Interesting. So there's a there's a package called uh, defaults from uh, Sindre Sorus, um that I've used in uh, applications. In fact, I use that in the iOS Dev Jobs. Uh, application recently, and that is also a great package for for solving this problem. Um, but it's it's always nice to see uh, um, a good use of property wrappers in the wild. Yeah. yeah, that looks really interesting because that's that's often a fiddly thing to deal with, especially at a stage where you know you just want to save something and um, yeah, you don't want to deal with the details necessarily. One thing that made me makes me a little nervous of any of these packages is the easier you make it to just 
store random things in user defaults, the more it will be tempting to store random things in user defaults. <laughs> yeah. um, whereas when you had to write every line of code to, you know, you remember at one point you had to you had to write your um, your default, and then you had to call synchronize uh, straight away for it to, for it to actually go go and store. Right. Yeah. And so that you know, in some ways, there are. Uh, there's an argument to say that if you make it too easy to do this, you might end up with too much stuff that you don't expect in user defaults. Yeah. And I would still recommend that you have, you know, one location for all of this, your settings that then go into user defaults rather than scattering them on every class and, you know, type that you've got around your application. Uh, and in fact, the example that um, that's in the README file here is for an app settings class that then has three properties that are all wrapped and you don't have to write the code to actually store it in user default. So I think that's a good use of it. There are also potentially ways that you could use this uh, that might uh, come back to uh, bite you later. Nice. Right. So um, my package is actually a pair of packages and it's, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's frequent guests. Point free. <laughs> <laughs> I did notice that they had uh, released a new package, yeah. Yeah, it's a new package that is a catnip for me. <laughs> um, also comes with a blog post, which we'll link to. It's called Dependencies. And it is a take, it is their take on, on dependency injection. And the reason I really like it is a, I, I'm actually using it already. Um, and it's, it's a very lightweight way of setting up dependency injection. I'm, I'm aware of a, a number of packages that deal with this and they often come with a bit of setup ceremony in the sense that you need to instrument your, your stuff. You know, you need to typically define a protocol, um, that extracts out the functionality you want to inject. And then you need to, you know, inject a default implementation that you want to, or production implementation you want to use, and then there's a mechanism to override that in your tests. Um, point free code's take is is a bit different. It's also um, it's it's sort of modeled after the environment, um, the Swift UI environment um, variable, where you uh, sort of define the, an at environment um, annotation for a variable. And you don't need to feed this into the type. It, it's just, it sits there as a property. And that alone, the fact that it exists in that way allows you then in your tests to actually, that's an override point for you in your tests. So it's very simple to set up. There's no weaving of, of anything through any, you know, initializers or any, any of the sort. You just use it on, based on your properties. And the package comes with a number of built-in dependency wrappers already set up for common scenarios like date, for instance, UUID, clocks and the sort, you know, for instance, if you have this UUID thing set up, so rather than call UUID initializer, you call that um, in wherever you need a UUID, you call the property set up with a dependency. And then when you want to override it, you can just inject um, certain types of UUIDs they want to produce either, you know, hard coded fixed ones or incremental ones that also increment stuff like that and the same for date and clock and the like and the companion package that i wanted to mention is called swift dependencies additions by thomas graperon um, and he's also i think he's a previous guest um, uh, in our package section um, he has a number of packages out um, working with uh, the composable architecture 
And what he's doing is he's adding yet more customization points for other uh, cases, like for instance, application, um, bundle info, encode, logger, process info. So what that means, instead of using UI application, you know, that, that um, static, um, you can use this one and then have an easy override point to, for instance, if you want to test setting your app icon or stuff like that, you know, stuff that lives on UI application. You can then mock and, and test and, and even have um, mocked in your previews. So it's, it's a very powerful system, very flexible and, and quite lightweight. Um, so, yeah. And you said that you're using it already. Are you using it in uh, Package Index or another project? No, this is in, in our um, internal. So we have a little internal tool that we use to view um, our build pipelines. Ah, it's pipelines. Okay. Yeah. So they shipped this initially as, as a module inside of the composable architecture. And one of their recent updates transitioned quite a few things inside the composable architecture to a newer system and also to their new take on dependencies, but they've since pulled this out in a separate package because it's, it's not actually composable architecture specific. It's not even Swift UI or, or iOS and Mac app specific. This is even more general than that. We could, we could use it in our server side app. Um, of course, and yeah. it would be actually a nice, a nice thing to do. I mean, we have no real reason to do it other than it, it's a bit nicer than our current setup, which is actually quite si similar as well, because it's actually based on, on an older idea by the point for co-hosts. But, um, this is a very, very generic way of setting up dependencies and it's actually quite nice. Fantastic. Um, my next package is a package called JX kit from, uh, I presume this is a company, um, it's objective, uh, the, the company, um, and I wonder if that's a play on objective c <laughs> i wonder if they were they've been around uh since the objective c days but it's a it's a package called jx kit and it's a module for interfacing with javascript core so as i understand it works on mac os ios and it claims to work on uh, linux as well although it is getting a uh, an x on the um, compatibility matrix uh, for that it even says it has experimental support for Windows and Android in the README, which is, uh, given that this is JavaScript core, that is, I'm surprised to see that, that Windows and Android are, are going to support it there. But um, effectively, what you can do is you can open up a JX context um, and you can pass it some JavaScript and get it to evaluate that JavaScript. And so that's... Obviously, there are lots of potential uses uh, for this, but I really liked how that this is, is is quite an isolated use of JavaScript core. So obviously, you could spin up a web browser, you know, a, a web view or something like that, yeah. and have that execute JavaScript. And of course, behind the scenes, that's using JavaScript core too, but this just takes JavaScript core as a single thing and executes JavaScript for it for you. Yeah, I had a quick look at the build fairly. I believe this is a matter of it requiring um, OS level libraries on Linux. Right. I see WebKit core, WebKit GTK, something being mentioned. That's probably a a source package a developed uh, dev package that needs to be uh, available in the on Linux in the base to, image. to compile that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, it's probably worth just taking a very brief detour around that issue, um, because I think we've taken, we've actually changed the way we think about how we deal with that kind of dependency 
on Linux. Um, so originally, when we started getting requests from people to say that, I mean, the, the, the common one was OpenSSL. You know, the package, a package needs access to OpenSSL. It was there on the Mac Builder machines. It wasn't there on the Linux Builder machines. And we even implemented a way to bless different Docker images that we would then use for the builds, um, if I remember correctly. But recently we've kind of maybe switched a little bit and uh, have started to add more of those dependencies into our default um, uh, Linux builder image. Um, and that I think is working well so far from what I've seen. Yeah, definitely. I mean, initially we were we were just using a plain Swift image with, a, with no additional dependencies installed, but there were a couple of frequent requests, like you mentioned, OpenSSL and stuff, and there's no real, I mean, the only problem you could have shipping dependencies built into the images if there are conflicting requests, right? I mean, no one is harmed by OpenSSL being pre-installed on that Linux builder yeah. or Linux image that we're using to build, unless you want a different version or some sort of package as a dependency that conflicts with that. But even that we can deal with by then allowing that user to either define their own image, which we would bless, or by us preparing a variant of that image with a different set of dependencies. So we've actually now built in a bit more flexibility in our setup there, where we actually have a repository where we manage the um, additional dependencies and people can just raise um, issues there to request additional dependencies to be installed in our, in our base images. So this is potentially something that we could either work with the authors of the package or or if we just if if it's obvious what it needs, we could potentially just add it even ourselves, couldn't we? Yeah, definitely. That's actually it would be interesting to see if this is easily fixable because uh I think it's an interesting package to see and and run. Um, I'm I'm thinking a bit further than just JavaScript core because I wonder if if this is WebGTK, I wonder if you could do snapshot testing on on Linux with this. You know, remember early on we had to sort of run the, uh, always disable our snapshot tests because our tests run on Linux. Uh -huh. We've since worked around this in, in other ways by using a third-party service to do the snapshot tests, but this might actually allow, uh, not this package itself, but a package based on, on this might allow um, snapshot testing um, on Linux, um, if if it's possible to build something that's similar to WebKit. Uh -huh. Interesting stuff. So, do you want to kick off with your second one? Yes, let's. So, my second package is is probably fairly quick to talk about. It's called Swift Number Kit. It's by Matthias Zenger, and it's a really nice package. As its name implies, it's about numbers, and in particular, it's about big int, like arbitrary position integers uh -huh. um, and rational numbers and complex numbers. So if you have needs around these in your package, um, this is what you can use to support them. And, you know, that you might have need for that sort of thing that is beyond in 64. And obviously rational and complex don't have any representation that I know of in the currently in the standard library. So that's, that's really nice to, to, to use that. And yeah, it's a claims to have a extensive test suite and um, looks like an all-around nice package running on almost all pa uh, packages watchOS um, is failing but that might just be something you know that's fixable but yeah interesting number kit by um, 
Matthias Zenger. So my final package for this week is by Brad Howes, uh, and it's called Knob. And it does exactly what you think it will do. It generates you a, uh, a kind of rotary uh, knob control uh, using core animation to draw the, um, the, 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 the kind of circle around. Um, and it's not a full circle, at least in the demonstration uh, that's on the readme file, it's not a full circle. Um, but it's a kind of 95% of a circle right, yeah. going from... If you you know from low to high, uh, like you would see on, for example, like a mixing desk or um, uh, a radio or or something like that, you, you, that this, it's a common control for audio. And in fact, the 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 package has been extracted from his app, which I, I believe is called Sound Fonts, and the knobs in that app control various audio effect settings. And so he's extracted that into uh, in, into a package and, uh, uh, and and placed it on the package index. This is not the kind of package that every application should try and find a use for. But I do find that these controls can be a really effective way of doing certain settings. Like it's effectively a slider wrapped around a curve. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there are some places where sliders work really well. And there are some places where a a, a knob would work better, um, and so uh, it's the kind of thing that I. And so one of the reasons I, that this stood out for me is that for an app, a very long time ago now, probably kind of iOS four or five days, I had to build one of these controls, and it wasn't a you know it wasn't a huge task to build it, but definitely it was something that took you know a couple of days of work to get it right. You know, I got the basics up and running really quickly. But then edge case after edge case after edge case, and you end up spending <laughs> yeah. you end up spending days on it. And so I would have uh, been very thankful for a, a control like this. Nice, yeah, I can I can see that getting getting tricky. Nice, looks really nice. All right, my third and final package is called uh, Swift Screenshot Scribbler by uh, Christoph Goldner. We actually have got a bit of a a Swiss uh, connection going on because Matthias Singer is Swiss and uh, so is Christoph Goldner. And this is a this is an interesting package. Um, it's it's a command line tool really. It's not a dependency you would use in your code directly, but it's a command line tool which allows you to annotate screenshots. So effectively, you you give it you point it at a screenshot or a, an image, and then it sort of generates. A frame around it, and you can you can add text. I, I believe Fastlane Tools has something similar like that, but this is a a standalone tool that allows you to do that. You can define obviously the the string you want to attach, the caption, the background color. You can give it gradients and stuff. There's you know positioning you can do. Really nice. So if you have, I, I could see this being useful um, if you have a process that produces screenshots perhaps automatically for uh -huh. for your app store assets and then you can you know run it through this tool and generate all the captions and stuff and, and you know do this automated in an automated way that doesn't um have you click around and, and prepare these every time you make your release so yeah uh, swift screenshot scribbler by christoph goldner that's fantastic six really interesting packages there so um uh, shall we wrap it up for this week? Let's do it, yeah. Um, thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening, yeah. And we will see you in two weeks. 
absolutely back on uh, back on the bi-weekly schedule um uh, as of now so i'll speak to you then speak to you then bye bye bye